The text for our sermon this morning is 1 Samuel 18. We'll not read the whole chapter. We'll read enough to get the lay of the land, and those verses will be on the overhead here. Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. So David went out wherever Saul sent him and behaved wisely, and Saul sent him over the men of war, and he was accepted in the sight of all the people and also in the sight of Saul's servants. Now it happened as they were coming home, when David was returning from the slaughter of the Philistine, that the women came out of all the cities of Israel singing and dancing to meet King Saul with tambourines, with joy, and with musical instruments. So the women sang as they danced and said, Saul has slain his thousands and David his ten thousands. And Saul was very angry and the saying displeased him and he said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands and to me they have ascribed only thousands. Now what more can he have but the kingdom? So Saul eyed David from that day forward. Now Saul was afraid of David because the Lord was with him but had departed from Saul. Therefore Saul removed him from his presence and made him captain over a thousand. And he went out and came in before the people. And David behaved wisely in all his ways, and the Lord was with him. Therefore, when Saul saw that he behaved wisely, he was afraid of him. But all Israel and Judah loved David because he went out and came in before them. And Saul commanded his servants, communicate with David secretly and say, Look, the king has delight in you and all his servants love you. Now, therefore, become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul said, Thus you shall say to David, The king does not desire any dowry but a hundred foreskins of the Philistines to take vengeance on the king's enemies. But Saul thought to make David fall by the hand of the Philistines. So when his servants told David these words, it pleased, it pleased David well to become the king's son-in-law. Now the days had not expired, therefore David arose and went, he and his men, and killed two hundred men of the Philistines. And David brought their foreskins and gave them in full count to the king that he might become the king's son-in-law. Then Saul gave him Michal, his daughter, as wife. Thus Saul saw and knew that the Lord was with David and that Michal, Saul's daughter, loved him. And Saul was still more afraid of David. So Saul became David's enemy continually. Then the princes of the Philistines went out to war. And so it was, whenever they went out, that David behaved more wisely than all the servants of Saul so that his name became highly esteemed. This time we'll call the kids down front for the children's sermon. Uh, <clears throat> the story we read today is a, it's a very sad story. It tells us how King Saul hated David so much that he did many terrible things. Now why was, why was King Saul so mad? He was, he was jealous. You know what that means, jealous? Jealous means that you're angry and unhappy because someone else has something that you want but can't have. The tenth of the Ten Commandments tells us that this is a great sin. When the law says, you shall not covet, it means that you should not be jealous of what other people have. But what did David have? David was just a poor shepherd boy. He wasn't a rich king like Saul. What did he have that made Saul so jealous and so angry? David had the respect of all the people. When Saul and his army shook with fear and hid from Goliath for 40 days, the people realized that he was not the kind of king that they needed. 
When David killed Goliath, people realized that David was the kind of man that they could admire. And this made Saul very angry. So angry that he tried to have David killed. One time while David was playing his harp, Saul threw his spear at him. David ducked and the spear stuck into the wall. At other times, Saul sent David on dangerous missions, hoping that the Philistines would kill him. Finally, Saul had David marry his daughter. This way, he could send him on even more dangerous missions, because he could say to David, David, you have to do this. Do you want harm to come to your wife, the princess? And so David would be forced to go out and do very dangerous things. I want you to think about this, because David was a true hero. If David had not come and killed Goliath, Saul would have been killed by the Philistines. All of Saul's family would have been killed by the Philistines. Plus, all of God's people would have been made slaves. By killing Goliath, David saved the whole church of God. Everyone owed their freedom and their lives to David. Now you'd think, especially Saul, would be thankful. You'd think that he would always be at David's side to protect him and reward him. You'd think that he would always follow him around, telling him how happy he was that David had rescued him. Instead, Saul was angry and wanted David killed. Saul was angry that the people knew that David was their hero, their savior. He wanted to be respected as their savior, even though he didn't do anything but, but hide like a chicken for 40 days while Goliath made fun of God's people. And this teaches us something very important. Unless God puts his love in our hearts, we will be like Saul. We won't want to be thankful to Jesus. Jesus did everything that was needed for us to go to heaven. He paid the price for all of our sins, and he perfectly obeyed God's law for us. He puts his life before God the Father in place of our lives. He was without sin, and he gave his life for us poor sinners. But if we're like Saul, this will make us jealous and angry. Because we'll want to be able to say, I did it myself. I didn't need anyone's help. Men without God's love in their hearts hate Jesus. They hate that they aren't allowed to save themselves. They want to be their own savior. And if we're like Jonathan, we'll love Jesus because he saved us all by himself. He is stronger than all of our sins. Jonathan loved David when he heard David talk about the love of God in his heart. Christians love Jesus because God has put his love in our hearts. Saul hated David when he heard David talk about the love of God in his heart. May we be like Jonathan and love Jesus with our whole hearts. We'll pray and then you can return to your seats. God, who didst of old speak unto the fathers by the prophets and has spoken unto us in these last days by thy Son, speak to us now in thy holy word. Make our hearts to be as good and prepared soil for the good seed of thy kingdom. Teach us to know thy will and to do it in all things. May Christ be glorified in the preaching of his gospel this day, and may grace and peace be multiplied unto us all through the knowledge of thee and of Jesus our Lord. For his name's sake, amen.
Well, our text this morning divides into three sections, which will serve as our outline. Number one, father against son. Number two, father, uh, son against father. Number two, father against son. And number three, father against daughter. God always fights to preserve the purity of his church. And this means that he drives a wedge in when his people fail to live according to the antithesis. In the words of our gospel reading earlier, a man's enemies will be those of his own household. The line that divides the seed of the woman from the seed of the serpent may run right through families. So for our first point, son against father, let's notice how the first few verses tell us about the friendship that developed between David and Jonathan. We'll have more opportunity to discuss this in detail on other occasions, but for now, it's important to note how God was working all things together for David's good. Well, I mean, what better ally could he have than the king's own son? And we learn something also about Jonathan's character. How does our text begin? Now, when he had finished speaking to Saul, the soul of Jonathan was knit. The Hebrew literally reads, was bound up with the soul of David. Who finished speaking with Saul? David. This is referring to those last verses of chapter 17 when David gives some account of his family. This conversation took place as soon as the pursuit of the Philistines was over. This would have been a gathering of officers and other important men. Abner, the general of the army, would have been there to present the young David to King Saul. Saul doesn't even remember him. Now, maybe David had put on a few pounds, maybe his hair was longer or shorter. More likely, Saul was just an egotist, that such a character that he didn't even pay attention to people. Saul has been greatly helped by David, by David's harp playing when he was troubled by an evil spirit, yet he doesn't even remember him. I think that tells us everything we need to know about Saul. The whole world revolves around him. You can do him a great service and he won't even remember your name. He never shows the least bit of gratitude. In fact, he's just as likely to abuse you for his own benefit. This conversation is presented to us as the explanation for the friendship between David and Jonathan. And the scripture is setting Jonathan and Saul in opposition to each other. As we're being told about this friendship, we're also being told of the growth of Saul's hatred for David. The, the episode of Jonathan's love is as beautiful as Saul's conduct is dark. David's expressions of faith and trust in God are what caught Jonathan's attention. And the world doesn't know anything of such friendships. Ages ago, friendships like this, a man loving a friend as his own soul, were not all that uncommon. But I think in order to avoid facing up to our own poverty, our degenerate age has befouled the memory of the past. We're like the proverbial dog in the manger. We don't eat hay, but we won't let anyone else eat it either. We don't have anything like this, and since we don't, we begrudge it to our ancestors who had it. Marxists have been rewriting history for a hundred years, and the, the entertainment industry has picked up the baton and, and sexualized everything to the point that no one can imagine people, men, being close friends without them being closet sodomites. 
Charles Ellicott writes, What won Jonathan's heart was the shepherd boy's sublime faith, his perfect childlike trust in the glorious arm of the Lord. Jonathan and David possessed one thing in common, an intense, unswerving belief in the power of Jehovah to keep and to save all who trusted in him. Now that sounds like an alien language to most people today, but it is true. Jonathan and David made a solemn covenant of friendship. They entered a holy and sacred agreement to maintain and support each other's interests, both in life and after death, whoever was the survivor. This gave David a true friend in Saul's court, and this friendship actually saved David's life more than once. God was undermining Saul and doing it within Saul's own family because the interests of God and his kingdom supersede everything else. Little did Jonathan know, but Christ wasn't bringing peace, but a sword between him and his father. The line of God's sovereign election rent these two men apart, and the result was that when it came down to a choice between Saul or Christ, represented by David, Jonathan chose Christ. But you see, this is what always happens. Every single one of us will be brought into situations where we must side for or against Christ. And not uncommonly, siding with Christ takes the form of siding against family and friends. And it is here that our commitment to Christ will be seen as real or false, in word only or in deed. Christ forewarned us of this fact. Beware of men, he said, Brother will deliver up brother to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and cause them to be put to death, and you will be hated by all men for my name's sake. Paul told Timothy, all that live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. This brings us to our second point, father against son. Now, because of David's exploits, Saul elevates him to a position in the court, and this time David actually moves into the palace. And in the ancient Near East culture, this is, this is being adopted. You will notice from now on that Saul calls David son, and David calls Saul my father. I think English royalty preserved a little bit of this in the title sire, because sire means father. The king was, in a certain sense, the father of his nation. He didn't rule as a tyrant or a dictator, ideally, but as a father caring for the welfare of his family. But something happens right out of the gate that sours Saul toward David. While Saul and the army are returning home victorious from this battle with the Philistines, they're met by a parade of young ladies singing a song of victory. And the song gets under Saul's skin. The young ladies are singing, Saul has slain his thousands. Sounds good so far. But David, his ten thousands. And Saul is angered by this. He says, oh, they admire David more than me. All he acts now is the throne. Saul feels slighted by this attribution of more greatness to David than to himself. But the truth is, they're right to celebrate David more than him. Saul cowered in fear for 40 days while Goliath mocked the armies of the living God. If it hadn't been for David, Israel would be slaves to the Philistines right now. David, like his son, the good shepherd who laid down his life for his sheep, had saved his people from bondage. 
Saul is the typical self-righteous sinner. They bristle at anything that belittles their own achievements. Oh, sure, they can say, I'm a sinner. But to say and believe, I am sinful, well, that's a whole other ballgame. Someone once said, don't get angry when people think ill of you because the truth is you're a lot worse than they know. Saul cannot bear the idea that of someone else being his savior. He hates the idea of being saved by a lowly shepherd. He must be his own savior. Unconverted men resent the idea of being saved by another. Nothing is more repugnant to the unbeliever than the idea of salvation by another's work. I don't want anything that I can't get on my own. In Romans 10, verse 3, Paul puts it this way. They, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. In Saul, we see a foreshadowing of the Pharisees' hatred toward Christ. Saul didn't want to be saved in God's way. Saul was a self-willed sinner who always had to do things his own way. Someone once said the theme song in hell is, I did it my way. Saul was going to be Israel's savior or no one would be. He begrudged God the honor of saving his people his way. And this can be seen in our text in a strange event. It's in the verses I suppose we didn't uh, read earlier. David occasionally still played his harp whenever the evil spirit from the Lord troubled Saul. And at least on two occasions, Saul threw his spear across the room in an attempt to pin David to the wall with it. How's that for gratitude? The only reason you still have your stinking throne is because this shepherd boy took his life in his own hands for you. And the thanks he gets for it is you trying to kill him because you're jealous that he's gotten the recognition that he deserves. And I want you to remember this as we see more and more of Saul's reprehensible behavior. Behavior that borders on insanity. That this is nothing other than the normal behavior of all those who trust in their own righteousness. They will turn on their own family to assert their rights over God's. Church history is replete with stories of men and women betrayed to persecuting governments by members of their own family. I mean, we've literally just witnessed people rat out family of the cops because they weren't wearing masks. If you think people won't betray you to a godless government because of your faith, you've got another thing coming. A man's enemies will be of his own household. Now, this hatred of David, which was in fact hatred of Christ, is the true disposition of the unbeliever. Man by nature is a merit monger. He believes that his actions put God in his debt. He believes that salvation is something he can achieve in his own strength and in his own way. Now, sometimes he'll be coy enough to say that he can't save himself. He'll admit that he needs God's help, but he always reserves the final say to himself. He always misrepresents his true plight. It's not uncommon for men to portray the lost sinner as a drowning man who needs, who needs a, a life preserver. But this is a gross underrepresentation of the facts. R.C. Sproul put it this way, God doesn't just throw a life preserver to the drowning person. He goes to the bottom of the sea and pulls a corpse up from the bottom of the sea, takes him up on the bank, and breathes into him the breath of life and makes him alive. 
I once heard a preacher liken the sinner to a, de- uh, to a man on his deathbed, awaiting the inevitable. But then the doctor enters the room with a miracle drug. He pours out a spoonful of this magical elixir and puts it in the man's mouth and pours it in. But again, this is a gross underrepresentation of the case. Because in this example, the life or death of the sinner is still in his own hands. He must still swallow the medicine. He must make the final decision for his own salvation. So that illustration is just a piece of devilish sophistry. It appears to give God the glory while it actually robs God of the glory and makes the dying man his own savior. Augustine noted something very insightful on Romans 9.16, which reads, It is not of him who wills nor of him who runs, but of God who shows mercy. Opponents of our Reformed doctrine like to say that this means that our running and willing are not enough without God's mercy. And Augustine points out that if that's correct, then the inverse would be true also. Namely, that God's mercy is not enough without our willing and our running. Anyone up for telling God that? Now, we learn this truth back at the beginning of 1 Samuel chapter 2 and verse 6. The Lord kills and makes alive. Salvation and damnation are solely in the hands of God. At the end of the day, all men are either like David and Jonathan, who humbly submit to God, or they're like Saul, who rebel against God because they want the credit for rescuing themselves. We pointed out last Sunday that you ain't David. If you're anyone in that story, you're a fearful Hebrew, or Saul, or Goliath. Either you're a lost sinner whom Christ saves without your help, Or your Saul, who resents being delivered by God's Savior. Or you're an arrogant enemy of God's church who gets his head crushed under Christ's victorious heel. Christ will either have the glory for saving you, or he'll have the glory for destroying you. In either case, all the glory is God's. Isaiah 42.8, God says, I am the Lord, that is my name, and my glory I will not give to another. And a few short verses later, God declares, I, even I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. We need to come to grips with how powerful man's native hatred of God is. Question 5 of our catechism teaches us that we are all prone by nature to hate God and our neighbor. Saul's unbelief turned him against Samuel and David, and against his own family. There are more families divided by faith than by any other thing. And it's because the nature of the rift is real. Family members often have a falling out over politics or who someone married or who is or isn't in the will. But these things are all superficial compared to the divide created by faith in Christ. We always say blood is thicker than water. But history tells us that millions of Christians have been ratted out to Christ-hating governments by their own parents and or children. There are times when the words of Micah 7.5 hit home. Do not trust in a friend. Do not put your confidence in a companion. Guard the doors of your mouth from her who lies in your bosom. There is no union like the union of man and wife, so much so that God uses it to depict the union of Christ and his church. And nevertheless, when one is an unbeliever, they literally have less in common than the living do with the dead. 
And our third point is an illustration of this. We've called it father against daughter. Saul's hatred of David is so intense that he abuses his own daughter. He uses her as a pawn. Now you'd think a father would bend over backwards to protect his daughters. But Saul's hatred of Christ leads him to sacrifice Michal's future happiness on the altar of his own petty jealousy. Let's review a few details. Saul had promised the, daughter, the hand of his daughter Merab to the man who killed Goliath. And then Saul marries her off to some guy named Adriel the Maholophite, and it's the first and last time we ever hear of him. And then in verse 17 we read, Then Saul said to David, Here is my older daughter Merab. I will give her to you as wife. Only be valiant for me and fight the Lord's battles. So Saul thought, Let my hand not be against him, but let the hand of the Philistines be against him. Well, David's response was, who am I and what is my life or my father's family in Israel that I should be son-in-law to the king? Now, it looks like he's just being, you know, formally humble, but Saul evidently took him seriously and broke his word and married Merab off to somebody else. Saul had hoped to use her as leverage against David, but then Saul finds out that his younger daughter, Michal, is in love with David. So he decides to use this to his advantage. He probably figured that David would decline, but he was wrong. David probably thought that Saul would be less likely to try to kill him if he were related. He underestimated the power of envy. Envy will drive men to dastardly deeds. I recently heard of an event where a young boy was kidnapped and held hostage for many years, assumed to be dead. The kidnapper abducted another boy, and the first one managed to escape and save the new kid, and they were both able to return to their families. The older brother of the first victim was so jealous of the attention that his brother got that he went out, kidnapped a mother and her daughter, and murdered them. You'd think he'd have felt Great satisfaction, pride at having a hero in his family. You'd think that he would have been grateful that his kid brother had finally been returned home safe and sound. Instead, he had to one-up him. That's how perverse the human heart is. That's what envy does to people. Saul asks for the most outrageous dowry ever recorded in history. A hundred Philistine foreskins. It's like asking for proof that you've drowned a hundred men in the baptismal font. Obviously, what he's asking for is physical proof that David has killed a hundred Philistines. But his request is sacrilegious. David kills 200 Philistines. And I'm sure that it was a symbolic gesture. David was showing that he was more than worthy of either girl's hand. He killed a hundred for each. When parents do sacrifice their daughter's happiness by pressing them into a miserable marriage... However selfish the motive is, it usually isn't malicious. The marriage Saul proposed between David and Michal was a marriage of love. But as far as he was concerned, his sin was all the greater. Nothing shows a wicked heart more than being willing to involve another, especially one's own child, in lifelong sorrow in order to gratify one's own feelings. Saul wasn't merely trifling with Michal's heart and happiness. He was deliberately sacrificing both to his vile passion. 
The longer he lives, Saul becomes blacker and blacker. And such are all from whom the Spirit of the Lord has departed. So though Saul consents to this marriage, it doesn't make things safer for David. His risk factor increased exponentially. David's continuing success terrifies Saul. So he gets him out of the palace by making him a general in the army. And generals in those days didn't sit in sheltered bunkers while privates risked their lives. No, sir. Generals led the men into combat. Wherever the fighting was the fiercest, that's where you would find the generals. This is why the men loved and respected David so much. Our text says he went out and came in before them. He never ordered his men to do anything that he didn't lead the way in doing. Now, this is where we come to the important question of where is Christ in this text? Hebrews 5.8 says that Jesus, though he was a son, yet he learned obedience by the things which he suffered. All these sad things that we've read about, how David was mistreated and abused, how Saul's family was divided over David, these are all foreshadowings of Christ. God sent David deep into the valley of the shadow of death in order to picture to us the depths of Christ's sufferings. Let's count them up. Just as David is about to drink from the cup of honor, he has it dashed from his hands. Rewards that were owed to his valiant service were withheld, and Saul didn't lose any sleep over begrudging David the promised rewards. His faithful service is turned into occasions of cruel persecution. He is forcibly separated from friends and family. He is forced to watch in pain as Saul cruelly mistreats those who love him. He has false charges heaped upon him. He must endure ingratitude and persecution from those whom he has benefited. He's in constant danger of treason, usually from those whom he has most helped. And all this... After being anointed king. Think of the strength of David's faith. Or rather the strength of God's hold upon David's faith. That he persevered amid so much opposition. David was thus prepared for the great work of his future life. But more than that. As a foreshadowing of Christ. His life typified the deep humiliation that Christ would pass through on the way to the throne. David gave the Old Testament church a glimpse of the manner in which it became him by whom are all things and for whom are all things and bringing many sons to glory to make the captain of their salvation perfect through suffering. Jesus, the captain of the hosts of the Lord, never commands us to suffer anything he hasn't already endured. He leads the way by his own example and calls us to walk in his steps. We're not trailblazers. We simply follow the lamb whithersoever he goeth. Saul literally owed David his life. Had the Philistines won, there's no doubt they would have killed Saul and his whole family. Because of David's service, not only was Saul and his family still alive, Saul still retained his throne. And David was still his loyal subject. And yet envy drove him to unspeakable evil. Saul constantly sent David on suicide missions. He personally attempted to murder him a couple times. 
Saul uses his own children as pawns in his homicidal rage against his very own benefactor. And this is the rage of an unbeliever when he is told that he must submit to the righteousness of God. That he cannot merit salvation for himself. That his own righteousness is like filthy rags. He cannot bear to be nothing. He must have some say, some glory in his salvation. There is no evil to which a man will not sink when the sovereignty over his own soul is challenged. Christians were martyred for the first 300 years of the Christian era because they refused to acknowledge the state as their savior. And I suspect that things may be heading in that direction a lot faster than any of us are willing to admit. It's not a reassuring thought that friends or family could rat you out for being a Christian, that your own flesh and blood could turn on you because of your faith. But David, as a type of Christ, shows us that we do not walk this valley alone. Jesus walked it for us. He's been in our shoes. Mark 3 tells us that just as Jesus' following was growing, some of his relatives came to drag him home and lock him up. They said, he is out of his mind. When that didn't work, we read that his mother and brothers came to see him, hoping came to see him, hoping to convince him to stop what he was doing and just go home. People said that he was crazy or maybe that he, had, he was possessed by a demon. And chapter 3 of Mark ends by saying, Then his brothers and his mother came, and standing outside they sent to him, calling him. And a multitude was sitting around him, and they said to him, Look, your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. But he answered them, saying, Who is my mother? Or my brothers. And he looked around in a circle at those who sat about him and he said, Here are my mother and brothers. For whoever does the will of God is my brother and my sister and my mother. Now, this chapter that we've studied this morning should serve as a warning to us of the terrible results, even in ordinary life, of an evil heart of unbelief. On the other side of the coin, is God's work in purifying and guiding one's life, as we see in the case of David. Because God was with him in all that he did, he is kept back from retaliation against Saul. And not only that, but he's remarkably faithful and obedient and remarkably successful in the work that he's been given to do. It's actually a beautiful period in David's life. The object of unmerited hatred the victim of despicable plots, the helpless object of a tyrant's ungoverned fury, yet cherishing no trace of bitter feelings, no dreams of violent retribution, but going out and coming in with perfect loyalty, always striving to prove himself a diligent, faithful, and useful servant of the master who loathed him. And like his greater son, he gave his back to those who struck him and his cheeks to those who plucked out the beard and he did not hide his face from shame and spitting. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for thou art with me. When my father and my mother forsake me, then the Lord will take me up. Let us pray.